0: pharmacy podcast network
1: if you or your patients struggle with muscle cramps spasms soreness or restless like syndrome you're going to want to hear about our non-opioid theraworks relief TheraWorks Relief is a clinically proven and published locally acting topical solution that prevents and relieves muscle cramps, spasms, and soreness in the legs and feet. In a research study including patients diagnosed with restless-like syndrome, TheraWorks Relief was shown to reduce symptoms commonly associated with accompanying RLS, including muscle cramps and spasms. Muscle cramps are reported as a side effect of hundreds of prescription medications, from intravenous iron sucrose and conjugated estrogens to statins and diuretics. By managing muscle cramps, TheraWorks Theraworks Relief supports adherence, helping patients stay on important and often life-saving medications. Theraworks Relief comes in an easy-to-use, fast-absorbing, non-greasy foam that can prevent muscle cramps and spasms with just a few simple applications a day. To learn more about Theraworks Relief, go to theraworksrelief.com and click on the healthcare professional link.
0: You're listening to the Gavel and Pestle Podcast with Darshan Kulkarni. The Podcast, where the law of the land intersects with the business of pharmacy. Hey, this is Darshan. Just before uh, you listen to the podcast, make sure you remember, this is not legal advice. This is also not medical advice, and um, it's not construction advice, so don't take construction advice from me. Also, this does not create an attorney-client relationship, so don't be saying that I just gave you legal advice again. Talk to a lawyer who knows you, that can give you advice that's right for you. Thanks again. Keep listening. We'll talk soon. This is Darshan. Uh, I'm here speaking with Manny, and I'm really excited to have him on. Manny, you want to introduce yourself?
2: Sure. Uh, my name is uh, Manny Fumbu. Um, I'm a cardiologist by training, and uh, I have had uh, experience working in practice and in, in industry from the pharmaceutical side, from the venture capital and private equity world, and back into into pharma. And I'm very uh, passionate about uh, the future of healthcare.
0: This is going to be great then. So, we're going to be talking about healthcare. And Manny and I were speaking before we got on the, onto the call. And we we're talking about disruptive influence because Manny actually happens to be at a conference right now. Um, and he is talking about wearables. So, Manny, do you want to first talk about um, what you're at the conference for, first of all?
2: Correct. So, um, I'm here uh, today in Chicago. Um, it's a cold day in Chicago with <laughs> snow. <laughs> <laughs> it's snow. Uh, and I'm here for the American Heart Association uh, annual meeting. And uh, I am uh, talking about and presenting the paper about uh, uh, wearables in the heart failure patient community. Uh, and when I say wearables, I'm talking about uh, the use of, of, of activity trackers such as Fitbit and Apple Watch and other devices that track activity uh, to monitor patients remotely and the value that could bring to a, a healthcare industry.
0: See, and, and that's the conversation we started off with, Manny. Um, everyone's talking about the big news with Pfizer. Do you want to talk a little bit about that news first? Uh,
2: Yes. So uh, recently, I think a couple of days ago, um, there was uh, a lot of headlines. And and, uh, I actually posted uh, an article about this on LinkedIn and on Twitter, which had a lot of uh, people that were very interested in that particular topic. right? And the idea was that Stanford partnered with Apple to do a heart study. And within an eight-month period, they actually recruited over 400,000 people that were very interested in participating in this particular study. And the idea was to generate data to be able to, be able to predict the risk of having uh, atrial fibrillation, right? Um, and recently, we all know um, when a new um, app, uh, iPhone came out, right, that Apple made that bold statement to say that they had algorithms uh, that could actually predict the risk of someone having atrial fibrillation. Uh, the importance of that is uh, many people every, every year die from strokes. Um, from secondary to uh, atrial fibrillation. And so being able to predict the risk of someone having an event and actually having a uh, a nurse or a doctor intervene ahead of time before someone actually has an event to save lives and definitely brings value to healthcare.
0: And and that's the interesting part, right, Manny? Everyone talks about adding value, trying to be disruptive, and trying to find um, something like the Apple Watch which is going to give you what I assume everyone's trying to go after is this quote-unquote real-world evidence that the FDA keeps talking about, saying that we want real-world evidence. We don't want your sterile, randomized, placebo-controlled clinical trials. We want to know how this really works. But here's my question, and and you are like the perfect person to ask this question because you're a cardiologist, you're a futurist, you talk about wearables. Um, but isn't this one of those seminal issues of garbage in, garbage out. I can't even get my Fitbit or my Apple Watch to tell me how many steps I took. Why should I trust Apple to tell me if I'm going to have atrial fibrillation?
2: Correct. I I think... The the question here is I I do agree with you uh, with the concept of garbage in garbage out right and and I think that actually goes you can take it a step further and talk about uh, the biases that are involved in clinical trial recruitment right and the data that actually comes in even if the data was clean right what kind of patient mm-hmm. populations did the data come from so it goes on and on and on right uh, if we want to look at socioeconomic determinants or gender and race and mm-hmm. there's a bunch of other factors we go into data piece but the question becomes without that algorithm what happens today nothing. Right, so so today there's nothing, right? So you, you get an AFIP and you die, whatever. There's nothing right, there. Right. And, and so if we go 0.1% further and a 0.1% improvement, right? In a baseline piece of having a device that could monitor someone's activity and to be able to predict an event. Uh, initially, of course, I agree with you that as we begin the whole process and that's why it's called machine learning. And I think in industry, uh, we are very used to the idea of looking at Abby and Watson and we have like, you know, AlphaGo and this like, you know, computer against machines and, mm-hmm. and beating everyone up. But I, I think we have to understand that uh, before before uh, Watson got to the point of actually, you know, defeating a human in AlphaGo, he spent months and months and months of tra- being trained on the yep. possibilities yep. of this. Right. So I, I think the starting point of for us is to get data in. If we get data in, over time, uh, the noise would get less, right? Because we could then filter things in and say this is this this is a false positive. But then we could tweak the algorithms to make it better over time. But we have to start from somewhere.
0: So, so your and and the, and and it's a valid point, which is if we always aim for perfection, if you if you aim for the stars, you'll you'll hit the moon, and that's good enough. And and that's not a bad analogy to use in this context. The, but the question then becomes. We're taking 400,000 patients, well, I guess subjects in this case, but um, one of the things you said, Manny, which I thought fascinating right before, is how they recruited those people. Um, You you said that they came in via a text message. Is that correct?
2: Correct. Correct. Yes. Go ahead. No, go ahead. ahead. (laughs) Yes. Uh,
0: And and I think that that's really interesting from a recruiting standpoint to get 400,000 people and say, we're gonna use this data. But here's the question we don't know. I mean, one of the things both you and I know working in this industry is that inclusion and exclusion criteria are critical. And I, at, four, at, at a number like 400,000, it's almost impossible that you are uh, looking at appropriate inclusion and exclusion criteria. And then, th- therefore, because of that, it's gonna be really, really, really difficult to evaluate if a true informed consent was given. And therefore, because of that, it's going to be really hard to see if patient privacy concerns are being maintained. And because of that, we're going to have to see, okay, so who owns the data if patient's privacy is not being maintained? Can anyone just sell this data? Is this a legitimate... I mean, one of the the ways HIPAA works is by saying it has to be between um, a patient and a healthcare provider. Is Apple a healthcare provider? Is Stanford acting as a healthcare provider? Or are HIPAA concerns not valid here? So these are obviously um, questions that we have to battle with as we continue. But do you think that this is the future? And do you think that this is going to, um, how should we put this, change how we practice medicine? What kind of data do you think we're going to get out of this, I guess?
2: I, I think you have some very valid points, right? Uh I don't know if you recall recently, uh, maybe a couple of years ago, when uh, Edward Snowden, um, uh, y- you know, uh, released the news that the government was was spying on us uh, throughout television screens and through yep. our phones, right? Yep. yep. Do you know how much uproar that brought? Zero. No one
1: cared.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. If, if if you go on Twitter today and you go on Facebook, you have multiple people talking about. Uh, they have diabetes and they have mental conditions, right? If you look at Facebook, Facebook is building a whole healthcare community of people engaging, actively talking to other people about your health. Do I I care if you know what my potassium levels are or do I care if you know what my blood pressure levels are, right? I mean, how does that affect my life, (laughs) right, if you know what my potassium levels are? No one cares about your potassium levels, right? Uh, The bank knows everything that you buy, right? We we are going to a a cashless... A society where everyone uses a credit card, which means your company knows that your bank knows everything about you. They know what you buy. They know every secret about you, (laughs) right? But yet, we don't discuss what 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 do banks do with our with our information? If you apply to buy a home, or you apply to buy a car, or a TV screen, or a credit card, what happens? You run a credit check on you. Right? We don't ask Mm -hmm. what, like, what what is the privacy of my data? How do you get access to my data? Of course, you know your data is being sold. That's how they know everything about you. (laughs) Right? Mm -hmm. And they don't even Mm -hmm. trust you. And you don't even authorize them to look at your data, but they know everything about you. They know about your arrest records and driving records and everything about you. But we don't talk about it. But when we talk about healthcare, something that matters to you and your life. We yeah. have debates, so it becomes a more sensitive topic. As if the banks don't know that about you already. Amazon knows everything about you, yeah, <laughs> right? And Google knows everything about you. Uh, but we don't. But and they sell this data. That's how they make money, and that's how they become billion-dollar companies. So I, right. I, I, I think uh, we need to. But I, I, I do believe in data privacy, right, and the right to, to data. But I and, and I and I think, uh, as we talked about earlier uh, before we actually jump, jumped on this, about who owns your data, right? And I think data about healthcare data is not. Uh, this independent thing that is that is disconnected from everyday life data, right? I mean, I, I think right. your, your, your data from Twitter, from Facebook, uh, your genomic gen, genomic data, your, right. uh, your lifestyle habits, your patterns of behavior mm-hmm. and everything else, your friendships and everything else around you, that's all healthcare, right? Because it's part of you. Part of you. So, yep. so I, I think we need to start looking at not separating data because it comes from blood work and that's health data, so it's more sensitive as opposed to your everyday life data. So I think the bigger question is, it's about data ownership, and this applies across the board to so every data that you own.
0: So that's a really interesting question. Should you care about the ownership of data? I think we may be veering off, but I find this subject fascinating. Um, but here's a question for you, and um, obviously, so I, I should clarify, um, I actually teach bioethics as well um, at, at one of the universities, so it, it's a fascinating topic to me. Um, but one of the questions I struggle with is the Henrietta Lacks case. And this idea, and uh, have you heard of the Henrietta Lacks case, Benny? Uh, Yeah, no. You want to give me a background on it? Sure, absolutely. So the Henrietta Lacks case is where a, this is from the 1950s, and this woman, Henrietta Lacks, um, went to uh, Johns Hopkins, and they found, um, they, they took her cells, and she died, she had cancer, she died, and the cells got sold multiple, multiple times. And as, as a result of that, um, there's an entire line of cells called HeLa cells and companies have made billions of dollars off of it, except she and her family never got a dime of it. And there's a, there was a book written about it and there was actually a movie made about it in which Oprah was actually acting. And it's one of those interesting scenarios where who should benefit. From your data. And I, I think it's an interesting topic when you say, well, we sh- does anyone care? And I guess people don't know what's at stake. And there, was, uh, there are actually two court cases that came after that, one in which it was based out of California. And this man, actually I'm, I'm forgetting the names on it, but one man actually tried to, asserting that it was his, uh, his genomic data and his cells, therefore he should have ownership over them. And they, and the court said no. And then there was another case in which the man said he should have ownership over it and he's going to sell vials of his blood and people pay him money for each vial of his blood. So he literally monetized his own data. And, and I guess my question is in where, in this new world where we're trying to monetize data, uh, and we're basically saying people may or may not need to care. Do you think we're reaching a point at which we, we're providing the tools to enable people to care. And it, it's been impossible to care in the beginning, but that may not remain true in the future.
2: Yes, I definitely believe that it will not remain true in the future. I, I think the reason now why there is... Uh, why people don't care, is because people don't know, right? I mean, ignorance mm-hmm. is bliss, <laughs> right? right, and right. So, because we are particularly interested in this particular space and we have the extra passion and the extra energy yep. to read what happens in the space. So we actually know what happens. But the average consumer has no clue that when you go to your CVS and you go to your, your, your Whole Foods or your ro- local grocery store, that that mm-hmm. that that free gift card they give you, you know, to give you discounts, coupons is actually being used yeah. to track you, <laughs> right? Yep, <laughs> exactly. Correct. People, people don't think about that, and people don't understand the idea of you driving through and they have cameras in the toll gates that take pictures of your license plate. It's actually tracking your activities, and that everything you charge with your credit card, you're actually being tracked. And that data, there's a huge data market, and and that that market is that that data is being used to actually. You know, determine your behavior and actually trigger you to, you know, and this happening with politics, right? If you look at what happens with Facebook now, Mm -hmm. politics and everything else. But there's two parts of it where we we focus more on the wrong question, which is uh, privacy to data as opposed to data ownership, right? And I think Mm -hmm. if I own my data, then privacy becomes a different discussion. Because privacy becomes an individual basis, right? You mentioned you teach bioethics, and I think yeah. it, should not, it should not be a one-size-fits-all kind of conversation, right? HIPAA applies. It's a big umbrella set of laws made by the government. But if I choose to share my name and my age and gender and where I live with someone mm-hmm. for research, that should be my personal decision, not the government deciding Absolutely. if I share my name or not, right? You understand? Yep. Yeah, so, so I think uh, the rule of privacy comes first with data ownership and making the consumer which... W- that consumer owns the data to actually make a decision on it. And on your last uh, topic that you mentioned, I mean, in our last discussion, you mentioned something that I that was very useful uh, where you you said patients, we talked about the Apple study, and you said patients, and you said no, uh, not patients, subjects, correct? Remember that mm-hmm. statement? Yep. That's, that's the future I want us to go in. I want us to stop using the word patient because everyone could be a patient. Right, and so mm-hmm. as, so far as we use the word patient when we talk about healthcare, we'll never get to the future of healthcare because the idea is, is prevention as opposed to uh, you know being reactive, uh, kind of condition, right? And to be proactive, then we have to stop using the word patient. We have to use the word subjects. We have to use the word members, which is what insurance companies use. Right, I talk to people from Aetna, Humana um, all mm-hmm. the time, and they never say oh, our patients. They say our members. Right, and I think uh, from a pharmaceutical industry perspective, from a healthcare system perspective, we should say people because we, we are all those people. Right, these patients are not foreign objects that came like now. Right, so I thought it was a good point to bring up.
0: I think that's fascinating. I want to hear your perspective more again because of your intimate knowledge as a cardiologist. Um, you, you drew you drew this distinction between patients and and subjects. What do you think the impact will be if you switch over from Avoiding the word patients. Do you think that makes, um, makes the data easier to access? Do you see that data being better, easier to use? Uh, or do you think that uh, the word patient itself just carries a lot of weight that, that has its own baggage? Like, where, what do you see the impact of that?
2: Uh, yes, definitely. That's a good question. So for example, I'll pick like a heart failure. I'm, I'm a heart failure specialist, right? And, mm-hmm. and so uh, we we have done surveys and even in the, in this in the space, we find out that majority of patients with heart failure did not, had no idea they had heart failure because the, the doctors were not comfortable telling the patients they had heart failure because it was a very, it carried a negative connotation to it, right? Mm-hmm. And if you look at some of the largest uh, uh, expenses in healthcare, they come around diabetes, uh, hypertension, heart failure, like you know, and this come along with, with multiple comorbid conditions, uh, and, and and this as extends also to mental health kind of situations. If you look at it, right, and so what happens is no no one wakes up in the morning and the first thing that comes to your mind is oh I'm hypertension today, yeah I'm a hypertension <laughs> person. Like no one thinks about things like that, right? But people, right. so it's a lifestyle change, and that incorporates in your day to day part of life, and it's just a lifestyle thing. And so, so far as we look at chronic disease as just part of life. And then we, we we look at ways to modify those to decrease our risk of having an event. I think that's the kind of mentality we need to have as opposed to labeling people. I, I don't think there's any value in, in labeling and looking at someone as a patient already, right? So I, I think it's a state mark. For example, I have had uh, headaches. I've had uh, like a sprained ankle. I've been to the hospital multiple times, you know, for pneumonia or having a cold or something. Uh, but I don't think of myself as a patient. Like I don't have a, this permanent stigma of me as a patient. But someone with a chronic disease over a period of time, you we just automatically call them patients, right? So it's like a negative right. connotation. You are a patient. I've been a patient before, but I don't look sure. at myself as a patient. I look at myself as many. <laughs> right? Right, right, uh, right. So, and, and me having diabetes or having hypertension, I don't. But if I did, I'm different from you having the same exact condition, right? Because you have a completely different lifestyle and where you live is completely different. And my story is completely different than yours, right? right. And, and, and what led to my disease? Was it genetic or was it environmental? It's a different question as opposed to yours. And so I, I think, for, and that brings us to the point of personalized medicine and understanding all these data points around us. I think we could come to better decisions. And so the, I think the good of this, of getting all these data points to make the, the best decisions and being able to predict what happens in healthcare, uh, is much more relevant and much more important than focus on the discussion of privacy.
0: So what, what I hear you saying is, is an interesting discussion. we're going to take a slight swerve. And we'll come back to it. I mean, we could literally keep talking about this for hours. We're already at about 18 minutes, uh, a little over 18 minutes, actually. But what I hear you talking about is the word patience literally has baggage. And what I hear you saying is, and please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, by the way. But uh, there's a statement I read uh, in the last couple of weeks, and I've, I've heard it used before. But it's the tyranny of low expectations. And I guess what I, I'm hearing you talk about you and I don't wake up in the morning and go, "I'm a patient." We're, you're just Manny. I'm just Darshan. We're waking up and living our lives. So when you call someone a patient, it comes with the baggage of saying, "I'm sick," and therefore I can't go through my day in a specific way. What I hear you saying is, "No, you're a you're a fully full fledged individual," and um, therefore. I don't need to see you as sick and I don't need to protect you because you can do that yourself. Is that a fair description of what I think you're saying or is that like, I'm, not, like, I'm not missing the point?
2: No, no, that's exactly what I'm saying. Uh, um, right? And, and, and even in the industry now, what we do is we are looking at ways to passively monitor patients remotely without in, intervening in their lives, right? And if you think about it also, as we design clinical studies now, we try to find ways in which we could make that patient not show up to the doctor's office. Mm-hmm. Because no one wakes up ever and no one has ever been excited to go to the doctor's office for an appointment, right? I mean, right. Like, you understand? And so why why if we live in a world today where Amazon delivers groceries to you at home, okay? Right. Uh, but yet we have to make appointments to go see a clinician in an office space to check your blood pressure and ask you questions about your family history of, do you have family history of hypertension and blah, blah, fill up a chart. And then make a guesswork about what you have. I put you on some kind of therapy and make you go back home. And you've taken the entire day off from work to to do exactly that. That's that's not uh, realistic and it's not comfortable for any person. You know, right. so imagine having a chronic condition where you have to go back every single month and to do the same thing over and over again as a lifestyle. That's why we have very poor levels of of adherence right and and then we try to solve that problem of adherence by saying we want to come up with new technologies and apps and to, to trigger people to take pills it's irrelevant to the point of the obstacles of the workflow it's, it doesn't make sense so i think in the future of what it is we have to of healthcare we we have to make things seamless and have a customer uh, experience kind of piece where we have to take uh, changes mentality of doctors being. Um, uh, the gurus and know-all people to saying that, hey, your individual and your health matters to you and educate you to understand exactly what's happening with you and enable you to make the right decision.
0: I think that's really interesting because the AMA just came out and did a whole thing on how they want doctors to remain the focus of all of this. While I hear you saying that with machine learning, with uh, artificial intelligence, with patient data, there may be a way of incorporating doctors into the process, but keeping the patient as the center, the, the whole patient centricity movement, gaining more traction, if you will. Um, Manny, obviously I can have a full new discussion on telehealth and telepharmacy, uh, which I, again, I have a passion and, and to talk about, but we're starting to reach that point where people will start tuning out. So this was amazing, and thank you so much for coming on. Um, I want to, uh, to give you the, the chance to give any last words, and uh, we'll go from there.
2: Yes, uh, uh, thanks a lot. So I think it was a great discussion. Um, I think my final word to be that we live in a, in a world today where, you know, if I'm trying to go somewhere, I rely on my GPS to guide me and tell me where to go, right? And, and when it comes to healthcare, we have no such roadmap, you know, to get us on where we're going. We have tons and tons of data that has been lost. Uh, like my grandmother, for example, died from heart failure, but, what caused the heart failure and the history of her life before she got to heart failure is completely gone, right? So my kids and my great grandkids will have no idea what relevance my grandmother's health was to my health and their health. And so I think in the future of healthcare with data being generated and us having that right to our data and sharing that data, we might be able to actually have this roadmap of healthcare that we actually would depend on similar to GPS. And that's my hope for the future.
0: That sounds excellent. Thanks again, Manny. We're going to both hit the stop button and... There we go. Hey, this is Darshan. Thanks for listening in. I really want to talk to you, but you can always email me as well. Darshan at conformlaw.com. Thanks for listening in. I'm really excited to hear from you.